This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. What the Russians are doing is turning that on its head and making this about the collective interest, not the individual, and really, in many ways, perverting freedom of religion. So this is something, again, these are these are freedoms that we have to protect, the sanctity of them, and be aware that they are being twisted. So heal our societal divisions. Don't use these as these culture wars, which are, again, aiding and abetting actors who do not wish the United States or our allies well. And that's really the place we have to start. Heather Connolly is president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. She recently served as a senior vice president and as director of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Heather joins us today to talk about a report she helped author while at CSIS, The Kremlin's Playbook, Keeping the Faith. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So, Heather, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to talk with you. So great to be here. Thank you so much. So you and I actually talked about having this conversation a couple of months ago when we were on a panel together, and I'm really glad that that we're taking the opportunity to do so today. Um, I want to start, Heather, by congratulating you on your appointment as president of the German Marshall Fund in the United States. I know that's a great honor 
for you, and I know the organization is in good hands. Well, thank you so much. It is an extraordinary privilege to lead an organization that represents the living memory of the Marshall Plan, which is celebrating its 75th anniversary. This this great, bold American leadership initiative that rebuilt Europe after the Second World War and pushed back against communist influence. So that is a great heritage to have. And boy, do we need to rebuild uh, Ukraine and Europe. So our work is needed now more than ever. But thank you so much. It's a a great organization. You're welcome. So Heather, in your previous post at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, you led a team that produced a series of papers called the Kremlin Playbook. I want to ask you, what's the series about and why did you undertake the project? Well, thank you. A great question. So the year, I think, was 2009, and it was the very early days of the Obama administration, and a group of Central European leaders wrote a letter. It was an open letter, which was sort of a strange form of communication at the time. These were great friends of the United States. They wrote a letter to President Obama warning that Russian economic warfare, and those were their terms, was having the effect of basically challenging or changing these countries' transatlantic orientation. These were countries that were members of NATO as well as the European Union. And for me, it was the research question, It could that be true? Could economic influence, Russia's economic influence, change the very nature uh, of the regime uh, and its preferences and its democracy. So we went about quantifying the amount of Russian economic influence in a select group of European countries. And that first report, it came out that, yes, if, if a country has over 12% of its gross domestic product is of Russian origin. And that's sometimes hard to calculate because it's designed to be very stealthy and shell companies and things like that. You were starting, we were starting to see evidence of their democratic institutions were beginning to be challenged. Corruption efforts were being shut down. Judicial reform was being shut down. And you you began to see where this, we called it an, an, an virtuous cycle of influence, of economic influence, which grew political influence, which continued to grow Russia's economic presence. The report landed about two weeks before the 2016 presidential election. And it really, I think, explained in detail how economic influence can begin to subvert democratic institutions and challenge the orientation of a country's policies and preferences. So that first one, needless to say, made a big splash and I think helped people understand a very challenging concept of how economic influence literally purchases or corrupts democracy. We then went on to continue to study these tactics. Our second report was the enabler. So how do countries that want that Russian economic influence, they are forces that actually gorge themselves on it. So corporate service providers, tax attorneys, they are all growing and, and using Russian influence, and it was starting to pervert their own systems. And then our very final one called Keeping the Faith looks at actually the economics of what we call orthodox entrepreneurs. These are Russian oligarchs that have been investing in the the use of the church, in some ways weaponizing the church and Western values. And so that's the third one. It's called Keeping the Faith and how religion and values are now being perverted by Russian influence. So that's, that's the one, that's the third one, Heather, that I really want to dive into. But before we do that, I know you were not the only author 
of these papers, and I wanted to give you a chance to say something about your co-authors. Yes, absolutely. And I, I want to very give a great shout out to tremendous authors. Uh, my co-author, Donna Cienri, uh, who's uh, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. But we had an international group of authors, Marlene Lariel, who's at George Washington University, Madhya Ruga, who's uh, at the European Council on Foreign Relations, Elizabeth Probamdro, who's uh, with Tufts Universities, and then uh, Tengiz Fakalazi, who's in uh, Tbilisi, Georgia with the Georgian Institute for Public Affairs. So we had a, a, a wonderful series of experts that helped us dive into Russia's use of what we call strategic conservatism in our study countries, which was France, Bosnia, Georgia, and Greece. Okay. So the keeping the faith centers around that notion, right, of Moscow's strategic conservatism. Can you can you explain what that term means to our listeners? you know, what it is and how to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And and we really have to focus on terms. And, and we want to be very careful because what we wanted to do in this report is to protect people's beliefs, their values, their faith, and to make them aware that it can be susceptible to disinformation, to, to malign influence. So we describe the term strategic conservatism, which is basically using one's beliefs, values, and traditions, and, and using them for foreign policy and security-related purposes. So what Russia does, and, and Russia actually uses strategic conservatism internally to Russia, um, uh, by uh, enforcing a set of rules and norms that only the state uh, sort of has the the authority and the knowledge of of the moral values uh, of Russia. That's of course the Russian Orthodox Church is a pillar of that, but it's also a series of societal norms. Again, the state, the hierarchy, the collective over the individual. But we were observing how Russia uses a variety of tools. As I mentioned, the Russian Orthodox Church. There are other charitable organizations they use. And, and what they're trying to do is build in separation from the democratic West, from what we would call the liberal West. And by saying that only Moscow is the true defender of the faithful, of the conservative. So this decadence of the West, a social agenda that embraces same-sex marriage or LGBTQ rights, that this decadence must be stopped. And Moscow is really the only one that is preventing this decadence and stopping it. So this can be, obviously, this is playing on the divisions within Western societies. And we certainly know that in the United States, they're, they're deep divisions about social agenda and the challenges that that presents. And this is where Moscow inserts itself on the side of the, the defender of the faithful and the traditional. But what they're trying to do is divide the West and demonstrate that, you know, you don't want to be part of the West, particularly for countries that are aspiring to join NATO or join the European Union. This is a really powerful tool to separate those countries and divide their governments. So it's very powerful. It works differently depending on the tools at their disposal. The Russian Orthodox Church is a huge amplifier of this, as are a lot of disinformation channels that really approach people who ha who share concerns, and it really helps them, you know, amplify their malign message. So, I'm so Heather. I want to keep digging deeper here, and want to ask some questions about the Russian Orthodox Church. But before I do that, 
Can you talk about what the concept of the third Rome is um, and how it's relevant to, to, to this concept of strategic conservatism? Absolutely. And it is a really important concept. So it is both a theological concept and it's also a political concept. So the idea of the third, that Moscow is the third Rome. So after the fall of Rome and then the fall of Constantinople, what some who who support this view that Moscow is now the legitimate, the true authentic empire that hasn't fallen because of their their own corruption, that this third Rome means that it is the center of conservatism, that again, Moscow as the authentic empire is now the true defender of the faithful. And it also speaks to this sort of the leader of Russia, the czar, if you will, or Vladimir Putin, is the spiritual leader of this uh, global orthodox and conservative movement. So it's got a lot in there, but it is a very powerful, both religious and political thought that puts Moscow at the center of the Slavic and Orthodox world, and they are the only true inheritor of that empire and the defender of the faithful. So when I read the report, one of the things that struck me, right, was the Kremlin and the Russian Orthodox Church being sort of the central actors in this story. And I'd like to ask you how so, how would you describe the relationship between the two and what do both sides get out of that relationship? Yes, I mean, going back to the the Russian Orthodox Church and during the czarist times through the Soviet Union and now today, it has always been a very complicated, a very contradictory relationship. So, of course, during Tsarist times, the Russian Orthodox Church, like Putin is doing now, is it's embraced as part of traditionalism, identity, and that hierarchy and that state control. Again, the Tsar as the spiritual leader in addition to the political leader. Of course, during Soviet times, and particularly Stalin, you know, wiped away the Russian Orthodox Church. Churches were turned into warehouses. It was to abolish that spirituality and that religion. Communism was a new religion. Now, where you have now, since 2009, a patriarch, Kirill, who initially had distanced himself a little bit from Vladimir Putin, has now fully embraced Putinism as a way to strengthen the Russian Orthodox Church. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship. So Patriarch Kirill fully supports Mr. Putin. He sees Mr. Putin as a miracle of God. He's fully supportive of the Ukrainian war. In fact, Pope Francis recently called Patriarch Kirill uh, Putin's altar boy and warned him not to be that close to those political leaders. It actually, it's been dangerous and hasn't worked because the closer the Russian Orthodox Church Church has come to Putinism, it's created schisms within the church. So the, the object was to unify a global orthodoxy. But what's happened is the Russian Orthodox Church has divided the Orthodox world and the Ukrainian uh, Orthodox Church or the Orthodox Church of Ukraine uh, has actually formally separated from the Moscow patriarchy. So what they are trying to unite under one slide you know, one leader, actually, they deeply divided the Orthodox world. So how deep is this concept of the Third Rome? How deep is that believed within the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia? 
So I think it has grown over time. Uh, really, this, I would say, this whole Third Rome narrative well over a decade ago was only heard in the most sort of ultra-nationalist, you know, voices. But after uh, Vladimir Putin returned to the Kremlin in 2012, he was suffering from a legitimacy problem. He encountered the largest demonstrations uh, of his tenure, and so in some ways began to embrace exactly this, this spirituality, this traditional. In 2012, a civil activist group, female rock band Pussy Riot, had a major demonstration in the major Orthodox cathedral in Moscow. And in some ways, this sort of crystallized opposition to Putin's leadership and the the violation of Russian traditions and and faith and identity. And so it really began to grow. And I see it, you know, accelerating now with the war uh, in Ukraine, where this spiritual, the spiritual that Russia cannot be spiritually whole without Ukraine, that Putin is the spiritual leader, this miracle of God. And so all of those threads have really come together and crystallized. So now this third Rome narrative is sort of legitimacy and justification for a lot of Russia's war aims. One of the things is I'm wondering about, Heather, one of the things I'm wondering about is does Putin actually believe in this concept or does he does he not, and he simply understands that it's a powerful political and foreign policy tool for him? What is your sense? So I would say five to six years ago, he saw it as an important tool to strengthen his legitimacy. I would argue, I don't know whether this is the pandemic and his isolation or health, or I have no idea, but I would say the last two years, what was a tool became much more deeply ingrained. You know, he's writing these historical essays about Ukraine. Uh, These are inaccurate and and incorrect historical understanding that he's starting to, in some ways, drink his own Kool-Aid and really believing this more deeply and wanting to demonstrate that, again, it strengthens his legitimacy. This All this talk about the decadence of the West, what this is, is is he's trying to separate any contamination, as he sees it, of democracy, of the value of the individual over the collective. This is what they're trying to separate themselves from and, and from, and even turning the script and saying, you know, what the United States did at the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was ending communism. Well, some around Putin believe that Russia is now the West's savior, that we have to, you know, move the smoke from our eyes, as it were, uh, of this decadence, of this social decadent agenda that is ruining us. So they also see it as not only protecting themselves, from from Western democracy and ideas, uh, which they're trying to suppress in their own uh, within Russia, but they're also trying to use it uh, to divide Western societies and 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 propel themselves as this great savior, this great defender of the faithful and the conservative. So this is a little off topic, but you've been watching Russia for a long time, and I'm just wondering if you sense that Putin is somehow somehow ill, somehow sick. 
or or you just can't tell? You know, the rumors have just been extraordinary the last several months. And these rumors have circulated, you know, after the assassination of former Deputy Prime Minister Boris Nemtsov, Putin disappeared for 11 days. There was speculation about his health. There was speculation that he has a bad back, that, uh, you know, all sorts of things. They certainly have accelerated. I would argue that the pandemic, while it was tough on everybody and certainly uh, accentuated uh, mental health challenges, there was something I think during this the pandemic, this is total speculation on my part, he was very isolated in his palace in Sochi, so very away from people. I think it was time to stew, it was time to, you know, he was getting a lot of pressure. Navalny, Alexei Navalny was, you know, challenging him, uh, his legitimacy, the change in the Russian constitution, his own sense of you know, his leadership, it began to crystallize. And all of these things, again, he just used as tools. They were instruments to further it. He began to internalize them, believe them, write incorrect essays. And he said, really internalize this. I would argue this is where, you know, uh, his isolation and maybe questionable health issues is propelling this, this urgency to restore Russia's greatness and its spirituality that he sees he is the unique leader. Only he can right the historic wrong of the Soviet Union's collapse. But boy, you need better doctors and psychologists to truly <laughs> understand what he's about. But that's my, uh, that's my guess. I think a lot of people are trying to figure it out not with a lot of success um, at the moment. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Heather. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So Heather, when we started the conversation, you mentioned this concept of orthodox entrepreneurs. And I found that really interesting in your report who are these folks and what do they do? Yes. And in fact, this is because we studied Russian economic influence. This is how, in some ways, how we stumbled across the, the use of strategic conservatism. So what we began to see is a select group of Russian oligarchs. Probably the most noted one is a gentleman known as uh, Malafeya. He has been a very big believer in sort of the spiritual return or restoration of Russia. He has, you know, great investments. And again, he's, he's his own oligarch in his own right. But he invests in humanitarian organizations. He, he runs a uh, uh, St. Basil's, the great charitable organization that that promotes uh, religious uh, understanding and studies. He has spent money to bring relics from the Holy Land to Moscow. Again, it, it creates that aura of the Third Rome, that legitimacy, if you will, of Russia as the defender of the faithful. But what we begin to see is a lot of 
Russian Orthodox cathedral construction. So in France, in other places, cultural centers surrounding this, um, you know, the the cultural uh, and, and the Orthodox world, use of organizations like Ruski Mir, Russia World, to help support that study. And what we began to notice, this was particularly prominent in France, that another oligarch, the former railroad ministry, Yakunin, was also funding, going into sort of former circles, monarchist circles and of uh, French, uh, Russian emigres that that came out of the, the Russian Civil War, that they were, you know, playing on those themes of the czar and Russian Orthodox and spirituality. And so it was a cultural issue. It was building these large cathedrals, funding charitable organizations. Uh, and it was, again, it was continued to surround countries and societies with these messages of the Third Rome, that Russia is the defender and the savior. You, you could also see financial support for referendums in several countries on same-sex marriage referendums. These referendums were designed to divide the societies at the time, put separation between countries that wanted to join the European Union or stay within Russia's orbit. So all of it worked together. Some of it was very soft. Others of it was, was pretty clear of what they were trying to do to divide but they were, these Orthodox entrepreneurs were really focused on strengthening the strategic conservatism. So it was sort of private sector support of the larger initiatives of the Kremlin as well as the Russian Orthodox Church. Do you think, Heather, that the strategic conservatism to some extent explains, for want of a better word, the affection between the Trump White House and Putin? I know there were a couple of true believers in this concept inside the White House. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. So we certainly do see a lot of affinity groups in the United States that truly believe in the agenda of the Kremlin, of this strategic conservatism agenda. And it's to fight against this perception of decadence. So sort of just taking the Kremlin and the malign work out of it, there is a shared view about you know, dramatic social change and what that means to one's faiths uh, and values. And, and that is a complicated and, and, and difficult topic. I think where we're starting to see the synergies, and this is particularly true with some groups in the United States who, who really support the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who's also perfected in some ways this use of strategic conservatism. It's an anti-West, sort of anti, it's a culture war. It's putting this um, cultural, these cultural issues issues at the forefront and weaponizing them. And so in using that for political legitimacy. So you are definitely seeing there's huge uptake. Some of this does begin to originate in the United States. There's sort of a, a feedback loop. There is a real focus on this protection of, of the traditional family, protection of traditional values for sure. But I think many are unwitting and don't understand that there is a foreign policy implication of this, that Russia is using this so we fight one another more intensely, that we that it causes division and weakness in the West, that this is just another tool in their toolkit, which is why we have to, that's why we wrote the report. So people understand what's at stake. Look, everyone, we're respectful of different perspectives but they can't be weaponized. And Russia is weaponizing this to divide our societies. I want to move on to ask some questions about Ukraine specifically, um, Heather, but just one more question on this broader topic. And you mentioned earlier that the Pope had 
sort of scolded the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church on his support for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But what role, if any, did the Roman Catholic Church play in the growth of strategic conservatism, positively or negatively? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Because, again, the the evolution of this, again, was, I think Pope Francis was certainly a, a leader in this, was trying to bring the ecumenical community together and not have these deep divisions and these and these separations. And unfortunately, Pope Francis, in his own views on more liberal views on right, right. sex marriage, for instance, you know, who, who are we to judge that? That, I think, opened a real division between what the Russian Orthodox Church was doing and against, you know, I think they thought they had a, a better ally potentially in the Catholic Church or the leadership of the Catholic Church. But it's certainly, again, these questions of faith and values, if not properly addressed with congregants and things can be extremely divisive. But I think most interestingly, I mean, the Catholic Church hasn't played a huge role. In fact, in our discussion of strategic conservatism in France, we actually saw where Russia's more French Catholics were beginning to start to migrate to the Russian Orthodox Church with orthodoxy because it was more conservative. So we're actually seeing where some in the Catholic Church were in France were leaving for orthodoxy. But I think the real loss here was the Russian Orthodox Church was trying to unite the entire Orthodox world under their leadership. And there, the first, the beginning of the war in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the first invasion in Donbass, that actually created the, the conditions where the ecumenical patriarch and in Constantinople, agreed to the separation of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And so the the churches split. And so the strategic initiative for the Russian Orthodox Church to be the unifier and the leader, they've just done them. It's their own goal of basically dividing the Orthodox world. And now we have even more churches within Ukraine leaving the Moscow Patriarchy because of their continued support for the war. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So I want to talk a little bit about Ukraine, Heather, and I know you've mentioned this several times in our conversation, but maybe we can come at it directly here. How does this dynamic of strategic conservatism tie into the conflict in Ukraine? Yeah, and this is where I call it the great contradiction, because on the one hand, 
Vladimir Putin has argued that the Ukrainian and Russian people are one people. I mean, that is in part to eliminate any distinction that Ukraine is a distinct nation, distinct people. And that he, you know, again, Ukraine for Russia is its spiritual home because the, the origins of Russia began in Ukraine and Kievan Rus. So there's a spirituality to this. And I think there's uh, parallels to the founding of, of Russia coming out of Ukraine. So it is is the contradiction that Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine are killing the one people, killing ethnic Russians that live in Ukraine. They are bombing Russian Orthodox churches because of indiscriminate bombing. So this whole sense of reunification that restores Russia's greatness, that Ukraine is at the center of its spiritual and historic heart, it is destroying itself, literally. That's the contradiction. And where you see, because Putin has to rally Russian society, they don't support war in general, which is why they're calling it a special military operation. They can't even say war. They have so repressed society is because war is unpopular. If you advance the, the knowledge that you're trying to save your spiritual, your Slavic brothers, you're killing them, and as well as killing Russians at the same time. So this is where the contradiction comes of this, you know, again, this third Rome, the Kremlin as the defender of the faithful. No, they're killing the faithful and, and their own spiritual heart. So that's just what makes this extraordinary. But the Russian Orthodox Church is obviously being mobilized, vilifying the Ukrainian people as Nazis. But even over time, uh, Mr. Putin's quote from the other day, they keep changing their justification of their war was denazification. Now it's returning Russia's historic lands, which they view, I mean, they go back to Peter the Great in those historic lands, which concerns all of us because those historic lands stretch to Sweden, Finland, the Baltic states. So, you know, we, that, that's a very expansive definition. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that this new this new justification that Putin has shifted to away from denazification, you know, towards recovery of strategic lands is actually selling better in Russia. Is that is that right or hard to tell? So I, you know, I, I it's hard to tell, but it, it, I think for me, it's telling that he's continuing to find the justification. Maybe the denazification, although again, using the symbolism, uh, the St. George's ribbon and things like that, it's certainly been well introduced. But I think this returns back to his theme of last July of this historic essay. He Again, he sees himself as the great restorer of Russia's greatness, historical. And he's now, you know, I think we thought maybe this is about restoring the Soviet Union. What he told us, no, this actually goes back to much, much greater, a thousand years of, of Russian history, that he's actually about restoring that potentially, which is an extraordinary ambition when 70% of Russia's conventional forces right now are having a difficult time securing Luhansk Oblast. But it speaks to his broader vision and speaks to Again, the grievance, the history, the spirituality of Russia itself. So the ambition is sweeping. The key gain here for Putin is the use of strategic conservatism here um, helps him legitimize what he's doing. 
It does. I said, and I think that was, he's used this tool before. I think he's internalizing it. That I think that's what concerns me the most is, is that when you start buying your own lines and you believe you are uniquely placed, that, you know, does he see himself as the spiritual inheritor of Peter the Great of restoring the lands? And this is where the Russian Orthodox Church, which was right beside the czars as they were the political and the spiritual leader, is he trying to fuse those? So this is this has got legitimacy about Ukraine aims. It's about keeping the West divided. But is he now starting to really believe, Patriarch Creel, that he is a miracle of God and that he has this broader spiritual role? That's where you get, I think, a little scary into his own understanding of himself and his ambitions and what he is set to do. You mentioned earlier a bit of a backlash, Heather, in the Orthodox Church more broadly to the invasion of Ukraine. And I'm wondering if there's been any backlash inside the Russian Orthodox Church itself or not. Yeah, it sure has. Not all Orthodox priests subscribe to Patriarch Kirill, the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, his full-throttled support for Putin, for the war. I mean, I think this is, again, it speaks to uh, priests that are, um, you know, tending their own congregants their, their, uh, and, and working with Russian citizens that have have lost loved ones in in the war without you know understanding where they are that understand the the economic toll that um, Russia's war is taking and saying again sort of as Pope Francis said look you know we have a different role here our role is not necessarily to support the state in harming our congregants. We, you know, have a different role here. So priests have been jailed. They've been shuffled around. There have even been some leadership changes within the hierarchy of the Russian Orthodox Church for even more higher level voices that have been questioning how the Russian Orthodox Church has embraced Putinism. But again, it is clear that there is a strong control by Patriarch Kirill. And he is, you know, he's really banking that the Russian Orthodox Church will be successful because Putin will be successful. But the, you know, the opposite can be true. If Vladimir Putin is not successful in the future, that will really challenge the Russian Orthodox Church as well. So we have about a minute or so left here, Heather, and I want to ask you, how do you think the West should respond to this strategic conservatism as a political tool, right? We don't want to criticize people's religious beliefs how should the West deal with this? So I know it's a really tough question. Well, step one, awareness. Understanding that our societal divisions, particularly when we talk about culture wars, wokeness, things like that, that division, you know, foreign powers that don't wish us well will use that and will exploit that weakness. And Russia has in some ways perfected this and sees this as a major place where they can help amplify our own divisions and separate themselves from democracy, from the role of the individual. Look, freedom of religion and the the value of the individual to freely express their uh, religion or not have religion at all, what the Russians are doing is turning that on its head and making this about the collective interest, not the individual, and really, in many ways, perverting freedom of religion. So this is something, again, these these are freedoms that we have to protect, the sanctity of them, and be aware that they are being twisted. So 
heal our societal divisions. Don't use these as these culture wars, which are, again, aiding and abetting actors who do not wish the United States or our allies well. And that's really the place we have to start. That's how we, we keep the faith that we can have these views and not allow them to be perverted. Heather, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing such an interesting paper with us. If my listeners actually want to go read the papers, and I suggest you do, just search Kremlin Playbook, CSIS, and they'll pop right up there for you. Um, Heather, thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to be with you. That was Heather Connolly. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.